You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. I think you all know by now that while this is a property podcast, that's not all we're interested in. Property per se isn't necessarily that interesting. It's the human element, what it does for us, the way we aspire to it, rent it, buy it, live in it, live off it. These are all part of a bigger picture. And that's why we love to expand these conversations, to find out about what else is important to us, what drives our behaviour and the implications of that behaviour, both on a micro and macro level. So we're very excited about today's guest because he works in a think tank with a bunch of clever people with access to all manner of research that allows them to tackle the big questions and problems facing us as a nation. In this episode, we pick the brains of Brendan Coates, Household Finances Program Director at the Grattan Institute. Now, Brendan's research focuses on tax reform, economic and budget policy, retirement incomes, superannuation, housing, transport, infrastructure and cities, all things that we've been talking about in many of our episodes. He's got a background in macroeconomics. He's actually worked for the Australian Treasury. He understands the political machinations and public policy. And we're really excited that he's joined us today. Thank you, Brendan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Brendan. Um I've read lots of the Grattan um, reports and research um, and they're very well put together and got lots of big ideas and big reform. What do you think are some of the, can't do it all at once, but what would be some of the most pressing issues if you had to make some big reform today you would focus on first? Well, the big one is that uh, Australians' living standards are pretty much stagnating. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we haven't had a lot of economic reform over the last 20 years. Um, so the pace has slowed a lot. That means if you don't have productivity growth, then people's living standards don't rise. Mm -hmm. That means your budget positions are being a lot worse than otherwise would be because you've got an aging population and we need to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And so the kind of things that I think really sit at the top of the list would be, you know, getting some decent tax reform would really help. So maybe we will talk about tax. (laughs) Um, housing is a really big issue. Mm. So I think housing sort of growing is a real social policy issue in Australia, both for the average Australian who you know, struggling to get into the property market if mm. they're younger. And then particularly at the bottom, there's a lot of people who are really struggling because if you yes. don't have a high income, then there's a lot of people in housing stress and homelessness is rising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then beyond that, I think there's a real intergeneration inequality issue happening in Australia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've had older generations that have done really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've done pretty well out of the tax system in particular. So the whole debate about franking credits during the election was yeah. really about trying to unwind some of that. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, And then you've kind of got these long-term budgetary problems that I think are still looming on the horizon. So Mm -hmm. older Australians, you know, Australia's ageing, so you've got more older Australians for every younger person who's still Mm -hmm. in the workforce. 
that's going to start to really hit us. So we've been mm. talking about these intergenerational reports for about 20 years. Mm. And during that entire time, we've been doubling down on exactly the kinds of policies that are going to make that problem worse. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to start to have that reckoning where older Australians are retiring and that's going to put more pressure on the budget. There'll be fewer people in work. And so the long-term position of the budget does look pretty messy. So on the... Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good the, sum up. Yeah, it is. Very good, actually. <laughs> I mean, the... Um, uh, you know, it's very scripted, actually. It's like you've done it before. But, um, in terms of, um, you know, the ageing population, because every country in the world's kind of got this problem, right, where, you know, people aren't dying at 80, they're dying at 90. You know, they're not dying. Um, and so the life expectancy is much higher um, and we're not having babies like we used to. And so we're only having, you know, one or 1.6 children each or something like that rather than 2.6. And so we've got this problem. Australia's natural counter um to counter that is got very high migration is that going to be enough though if we have very high migration over the next say 20 30 years to at least make it much more even it means our population problem our aging problem is a lot less bad than other countries so mm. you know the pension is not going to grow as fast as a share of gdp and partly as a result of the fact that we've got you've got you're bringing in younger Largely skilled, although a lot, a growing share of the, the migrant intake is actually unskilled. Mm. Um, people into Australia who are going to be here for a long time, they're going to pay tax for 30, 40 years before they themselves retire and mm. sort of they go on their way and start mm. drawing more benefits from government. Mm. The challenge in Australia is that in the last 15 years, and particularly under the Howard government, but a, um, a bit on either side of that, we've sort of doubled down on um, age-based entitlements. So, you know, we raised the pension under, under Rudd. Um, mm. That obviously cost a bunch of money. But the bigger things have been making the superannuation tax system much more generous. Mm. Uh, so, you know, now superannuation earnings are tax-free for anyone earning le- with a balance less than $1.6 million. Mm. You know, you can put a lot of money into super now and it's taxed very concessionally. There's higher um, tax-free thresholds for older Australians. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, making franking credits refundable, I think, was in 2000 is sort of part of the issue as well. So we've gone from a world where about one in four older Australians paid any tax to a world where only about 10 to 15% pay any tax today. And so in a world where you retire at 65 and you don't pass away until your early 90s on average, mm. that's a long time to opt out of the tax system. Mm. And it means that someone can earn basically $100,000 income as an older Australian be tax-free in their retirement. Whereas a minimum wage earner, he's got to pay some tax. Mm. So that's going to be a big challenge. And I think we're going to have to face that reckoning over the course of the next 10 years. It's not politically popular, particularly when older Australians make up a growing share of the voting population. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that going to be problem, hard one. Though, right? You know, like if you've got to win parliament, you've got to win, you know, the election, you've got to kind of have the older cohort on board. And if you're coming up with policies that are going to piss them off, you're not going to get elected. So, you know, I think that isn't that the real challenge? <laughs> that, look, that is the challenge. But some work we did out of the election was really interesting. It showed that all those seats that were older and wealthier mm. swung to Labor. Mm. And all those seats that were younger and poorer swung to the coalition. Wow. Mm. So the conventional wisdom that it was now franking credits that cost Labor the election, I don't know if that holds. Mm. Um, mm. I suspect it had an effect at the margin, certainly when you got an unpopular, well, a fairly unpopular leader of the polls suggested in Bill Shorten and you're trying to do it from opposition, it's pretty hard. Like Paul Keating and Bob Hawke, when they made these big reforms, they didn't do them from opposition. Mm. They got in, did a year in government, announced something hard, implemented it before the next election and took it to the election. Mm. And that's, I suspect, where we'll go Mm. if we're going to deal with these things in future. I I was also, at the election, I got a lot of stick about this. Um, I was actually for the removal of franking credits. I thought that the real reason why is because a lot of people over the age of 60 
um, do have a lot of money in super in tax-free environment where it's tax-free income, tax-free growth. It's like a tax haven. Yeah. And they've got lots of money in there. And then they've also got a nice house that's growing tax-free as well. And so, they're, you know, they're not really contributing much. Um, yes, they've got paid tax along their life, but they're getting a lot of tax-free income and the government's not getting taxed. So is that... The real risk here is that that problem's getting bigger and bigger every year. Is that the real problem? Yeah, that's right. So you're basically eroding your income tax base as the population ages mm. at the time when we know we need to spend more on older Australians for their pensions, mm. for their health care. Mm. So health is the big one. So, you know, we're spending for the average household that's, say, in their 70s, the government spends something like $15,000 a year on them. Right. You know, that's mainly health. And so individuals don't normally put into their own pockets to pay for health care. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Medicare's free pharmaceutical benefits scheme for all your drugs is you know heavily discounted that's where the real cost is and you're right so we've we've basically taken our retirement income system our super system and we've turned it into a way of generating essentially a tax haven we've made it far too easy to put money in and never pay tax (laughs) to the point where people are you know will pass away because the average person in retirement does not spend down their retirement savings no the average person is pretty much a net saver really which, ba- which mm. basically means that in the long run, what are we doing? You're kind of subsidising inheritances. Mm. And that's not really what the system's supposed to be about. I was about to ask, actually, is that what the architect of the system had intended? You know, because often, I guess, when it comes to any tax reform, there's clever people that work out how to get around it. You know, clever accountants, uh, clever people hire clever accountants to give them advice. And often it's that unintended or that unanticipated uh, behaviours that come about. So with the franking credits, for instance, that was a bit of an oversight, wasn't it? So that was never intended that people who didn't pay tax would get the franking credits. I think the better example is the super system because mm-hmm. I think there's this idea um, created by a um, US academic called cludgeocracy, mm-hmm. which basically says in the, uh, in the attempt to try to get fair outcomes, you add complexity. And once you add complexity, as you say, someone will find their way around the Mm. rules. And that someone does tend to be wealthier Australians or wealthier people that have access to financial advice. Uh So you've got a whole industry of people whose job it is largely is to Uh find their way Mm. through the system. And the the stakes are high enough that, you know, higher income Australians will pay them to do so. Mm. So when it comes to super, we used to have a system that was a bit of a mess. So and this is Mm. actually Paul Keating's fault. So Paul Keating, we used to have a system, the perfect system in the eyes of many. It's not yeah. something I fully agree with, but it's kind of float, um, tends to be, you know, uh, what's in fashion is that you put your money in tax-free, um, the earnings on the money when it's in, the, so your dividends and shares when it's being saved are tax-free and then you tax at full marginal rates on the way out. Mm. That was the system Australia used to have. Right. And then Keating uh, basically brought forward the taxes, introduced taxes on the contributions and the earnings to get some money. And made it really messy because right. then now we, we tax the earnings concessionally, the contributions concessionally, and then at the time we were taxing the withdrawals. Mm. Costello came along and he said, look, uh, that's pretty messy. Let's get rid of the tax on withdrawals. Actually pretty good policy. But for, for those that are over the age of 60, the earnings is still tax-free. Mm. And so you can put money in just before you retire, pay 15% mm. tax, and then not pay tax again for the rest of your life on that mm. money. Yeah. Um, so that's an example where we made it really hard. Mm. Um, and over the last 20 years, though, the rules have, they, they were a bit too broad and now they've gone, oh, God, this is going to be a big problem. We've got so much money growing up, getting in super now. Two trillion, 2.2 trillion, 2.7 trillion. Like it's getting a lot of money and that, a lot of that money is growing tax-free. <laughs> and so 
then they started said, look, we've got to start limit how much people can put into super. So you know, that has stopped it. And then they said, well, let's start taxing people with big balances. So that's what they're kind of doing. I know that Grattan haven't, uh, that's on the retirees though, but one of the things that protects young Australians um, and gives and de-risks their future the most is forcing them to save for their own retirement um, because humans are humans and they'll spend their money. And then from my understanding, Grattan don't believe that we should be increasing the super 9.5% up to 12%. Yeah, the Could, super guarantee. Yeah, so what, what's, you know, I think it really protects someone. Why do you think that you should not do that or why the government shouldn't do it? Well, we should do it. And so compulsory super is a good idea mm. and it's been actually quite successful. It's been so successful that we don't need to increase it anymore. So that's really the argument. It's funny because Keating was, uh, I saw him on the ABC only recently saying that 12% wasn't enough because we were living to 100 now. And when he did his, his budget, his uh, forecast that uh, we had a, a shorter life expectancy. So tell us more. Why do you believe that it, it's done its job or it's, it's enough at 9.5%? It, look, it's a fascinating debate because I think most people would say, hang on, yeah, you know, more self-sufficiency is not a bad thing and therefore it's, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. So... What we did in a report uh, called Money in Retirement Earlier that was published uh, late last year uh, looked at, okay, well, what's happening to um, how well off are retirees today? How are they doing? And what's the retirement look like in future? And retirees today actually are doing really well. Now, they're not all living roll gold lifestyles on the Sunshine Coast, <laughs> but the real test is, are you doing as well in retirement as what you're doing beforehand? Because that's really what the system's trying yeah. to achieve. So the compulsory super contributions are about overcoming this behavioural bias that you're just not going to save your retirement mm-hmm. or you might just sort of like blow your cash and over the age pension. Yeah. You know. got to remember, it still really is the it is, so it's going to come out of there. I'm an employer. I pay for it. Well, you, so you start <laughs> off by, so that was a shake of the head. So you start off by paying for it. But in reality, in most cases, it actually comes from workers' wages. And that is what the evidence does show. In the sense you don't put the wages up. Exactly. So, you know, in a world where, you know, one of the arguments is, you know, we've got low wages growth. This is the only way you're going to get more money in your pocket. Mm. And I think it's a bit like rearranging the deck chairs on the mm. Titanic. Because yeah. for most employers, you've got a bucket that you put the wage into and a bucket you put super into. And for most employers, if you put have to put more into the super bucket, you know, nominal wages are still growing 2.3% mm. a year and the super guarantee is going up in 0.5% a year increments. Mm. You know, that means your wage growth will be 1.8 rather than 2.3. Yeah. So the real issue is, is that we're going to, in a, an economy where we've already got low wage growth, we're going to potentially let go of that, which could be better for our economy. If people get that money, they could spend it and that could be better for the economy. You know, the reality is people aren't going to save that money because... The vast majority of Australians spend every single dollar that comes in. So if you don't take <laughs> that money off them, that's gonna, they're going to spend that money. You know, And I guess that's the reality here is that you've got to be pretty confident that 9.5% is enough money. That's right. And so you know, our work shows that the average person is going to retire with a retirement income of about 90% of what mm. they had while they're working. Mm. The number that tends to be thrown around internationally is 70%. Mm-hmm. You look at uh, the modelling that's been done by others that says that's not enough. And they were predicting a retirement income crisis today. Mm, and now right. people have gotten to, cri- gotten to retirement. But retirees are more financially comfortable than any other group in society. And it's interesting because I did read an article about that report. And one of the things that you pointed out was that there's a lower socioeconomic group, however, who haven't got their own home, who are not better off. And that's where the real crisis is going to be. Mm, mm. So the government's got this retirement income review that they've said they're going to set up. And I think everyone in the, in the industry is waiting. 
waiting to see what they're going to do. Mm. Um, and the big problem is home ownership's crashing amongst the young and the poor. Mm. So 30 years ago, when you looked at, say, 25 to 34-year-olds, the poorest sort of quarter to a fifth of that group, most people own their own homes. It was north of 60%. Mm. Now it's 20%. Mm. We're seeing that growing forward or transitioning forward into older age groups. So home ownership's been falling in Australia amongst younger cohorts for quite a while. Mm. And some of those cohorts are now in their 50s, mm. uh, particularly with lower income. And yep. so we're going to see the share of Australians that own their own home in retirement fall from about 75% today to less than 60% in a couple right. of decades' mm. time. And if you don't own your own home in retirement, all the numbers that we see is that you really struggle. Yep. So pensioners that own their own home are very unlikely to, say, be in financial stress mm. and not be able to pay a bill on time mm. or they're skipping meals. Yeah. If you don't own your own home and you're a pensioner, you are in deep trouble. Yeah. And if you don't own your own home and you're a working age Australian, particularly on New Start, you're in deep, deep trouble. Mm. So that's the crisis. Mm. And I think a really interesting part of the super debate is the presumption is super helps the budget mm. and raising compulsory super will help the budget because it reduces the pension spending. Mm. But that right. unfortunately isn't the whole story. Because the tax system is so generous, mm. increasing compulsory super costs the budget about $3 billion a year today. Because of basically reallocation of wages into super. Yeah. Where it's taxed concessionally yeah. compared to being taxed yeah. at marginal rates. Mm. And even in the long run, it still hurts the budget. Really so super, higher super will exacerbate the problems of an ageing population, not solve them. Could they just in, in turn, though, just up the taxes on super to as the whole balance to get people to put more money in, but then just tax the super more at a higher rate. So you could certainly do that, but the, you'd have to be taking $5 billion a year plus out of the super system. Mm -hmm. So uh, franking credits would have done something like that. It was about $5 billion. Really? The Turnbull government changes that happened in 2016, 2017, they were worth a billion dollars. Mm. So you've got a lot to do. And why would you do that first? And our argument would be that it's not needed anyway. Nine and a half Look, maybe 10. Maybe we're getting close to the point where you accept mm. it's going to go to 10 because mm. it is legislated to increase. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so maybe maybe you say leave it at 10 and then we're done. It's a nice big round number. I think we'd be pretty comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then you move on and you focus on the real problems in the system, which is renters. Yeah, let's go, let's go there then on property because affordability <laughs> um, is a big issue and it's it's a big social issue because there are other people on the um, who haven't got work who are never going to potentially own a home because it's just so um, just out of their reach, right? And then you've got homelessness because there's not enough properties and not rental accommodation. But then there's also the the you know the middle kind of income bracket that also struggle because of the prices. So what do you think? What's some of the big reforms that we need to do as a country to kind of start to reverse the home ownership rates and start not marginalising people? So I think you've got to break it up into two parts. You've got to break it up for your everyday Australian and then you've got to look at the bottom 20% differently because yep, the, cool. there are certain things that you can do for everyone that will help the bottom 20%, but it won't be enough. Yep. Yep. So for every, the bigger problem is that housing has become more expensive. So price to income ratios have gone up a lot. I'm sure you've talked about this before on the show. Mm -hmm. um, rents have risen, although they've only really risen in line with wages. So yep. they haven't gone up that much. Yeah. Um, but the big issue is that uh, housing has become less affordable because those prices are so high. The deposit hurdle has gone from six to 10 years yeah. to buy the average house on the average income. And as I said before, home ownership's crashing. So we've, and that's not because they don't want a home. 
Because it, because it's not as if it's just younger Australians that are low income that are deciding, nah, I don't want a home, and everyone else is yes. still really keen. All mm. the surveys show they really still care. Yeah. So it's it's clearly related to affordability. It's not a question of just saying smashed avocado instead of saving for a house uh-huh. or perception or all that. How long is it? It's a moving target. You know, there's there's all these perceptions around that as well, and they and they give up and make different decisions. So, I mean, affordable is part of that, but it's still a behavioural reaction to that as well. Well, some of the work that Grattan put out recently, a report called Generation Gap, says that younger Australians are spending less on discretionary items yeah. than they did, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Really? There you yeah, go. As they a share get, of their income. But the housing the avocado argument then. Yeah. The house and the rent, et cetera, is such a big portion right. of their spending. Is that what you mean, though? Absolutely. The, the, the spending on uh, essentials has gone up. Mm. And so, and housing's you know obviously the biggest part of that because yeah. I think older generations look at oh look younger generations are going out and getting takeaway food all the time and doing all these things or going and travelling. Mm. And the thing is that these things have become cheaper in some sense relative yeah, to your have. income. Yeah. So you know it's pretty cheap now to go fly to Bali. Mm. You it know, is. thirty years ago it was really expensive to get on an, an airplane. Mm. And so I think people look at the consumption and they say, hey. That's where they're spending all their money. But no, they're not actually spending more of their money than in the past. It's just that some of those things got cheaper. Prices, mm. Relative prices change. It's a good uh, It's a good point, that perception. It's like oh, so many things to do with an election. It's all about your lens and how you look at it and what what data you're actually relying on and how you're interpreting that. So I do, I do like the fact that... Um, you know, you, I trust your data better than my opinion on that. Well, I I have I haven't listened to enough of the podcast to to have formed a view of your opinion, but like we do trust our data. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to answer your question before about what you do, look, mm. the answer is pretty simple. Um, housing's become more expensive because of interest rates have fallen. You know, debts risen, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. But in terms of the things that we can really deal with or uh, would work, you know, the big problem is we haven't built enough housing for a growing population. That's a problem that grows over time because we only add, you know, less than 2% of the housing stock each year. Mm-hmm. Population's been booming in Australia for about a decade and a bit. Mm-hmm. And we've only at the peak of the housing construction boom got close to meeting that demand. Mm-hmm. And up before, before and after that point, we're adding more people than we are houses and particularly housing in Melbourne and Sydney where people really want to live. Have you mm. done any work though? Because I mean, there is, there's an apartment oversupply problem in Melbourne. And maybe don't... it's not so critical now, but it's certainly over the last you know decade, it's at points been an issue. I mean, you've got developers that turn them into service departments rather than sell them. So define oversupply because anytime prices fall, we say we've got oversupply. Okay, so my view of oversupply is where you've got far too much crap stock built in a location where there's just not the enough demand for people to live in that location in that type of stock. So Docklands, for argument's sake. Now, I'm not an expert in Melbourne, so I can completely get into trouble with this mm. one. But if you've got, and, and, and Docklands has been mentioned many, many times, South Bank mentioned many, many times over the past decade. So I'm, I'm not giving them as specific examples, but if you have a, a lot of new buildings in a concentrated area where a lot of the stock is homogenous, you've got ones and two bedrooms, um, it's all been sold to investors on a, on a bit of a, a dream. Property prices aren't going up because, you know, there, there is a lot of data around about the resale value, or those um, property prices on resale being less in like 60% of cases over a 10-year period. Um, so, so those sorts of things to me say oversupply. When you've got prices falling there's oversupply. And so it's what is being built, the type of apartment, the type of housing and the locational concentration of that housing. So I've always wondered, and and I'm not asking this because I know the answer, I don't know the answer, but I've always wondered how can you have a situation where you don't have enough housing for the population and yet 
you've got a situation where you've got prices falling? I think, so you do obviously get um, particular parts of the market which do different things. And Docklands, I think, is an example of something that didn't work particularly well in practice. But prices falling on the whole is, is a good thing. You know, I don't think you'd hear that very much. People on this podcast would want to say that very much or your listeners think would, would sort of think of it that way. But prices falling is how housing becomes more affordable. Yeah, except, okay, I, I get you here, except you've got a situation in isolation. You've got, you've got a situation where you've got a, tip, a, bit, a, a type of stock in which prices fall over a period of time where the rest of the market in the same city, prices are rising. So, so why would anyone with half a brain buy take advantage of that affordability piece and go, oh, goody, I'm going to buy in an area where prices are falling whilst everything else is rising. That is not a good investment decision, whether I'm buying it to live in or not. You know what I mean? So I'm just saying I'm, that's where I come to with that. You say it's good. I say don't buy there, people. You know, different, different approaches, mm. I guess. Well, I suppose so part of what's happening is a lot of that stock in Melbourne. So Docklands is an example, but yeah. we've built a lot of stock elsewhere. Uh, rents have, have been flat. So rents in Sydney, for example, are falling. Mm. Now, that is making housing more affordable yes. yeah. for, for the people that choose mm -hmm. to live in it. Mm. I don't doubt that there are some people that are taking a loss or a hit on, 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 that, um, on their investment. Mm. Now, I don't think that's what public policy should try to sort of achieve. Like mm. if, we, if we have a, one of the big challenges, and I don't know if this is quite answering your question, mm. but a big challenge we have with affordability is, uh, particularly with the politics, you know, we saw this with Scott Morrison during the election, we're going to help you afford a house, but prices aren't going to fall. Mm. Like those two things, unfortunately, are contradictory mm. at the end of the day. Well, but Labor said the same thing, though. I mean, they were saying that uh, the negative gearing policy isn't going to reduce prices. But and I would agree with that. I don't think negative gearing would reduce prices mm. very much at all. Um, you know, we've. I, I know there are others that disagree. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, all those apartments in Docklands are already lost value. There's going to be nobody wanting to buy them <laughs> if there was so, no negative gearing available. So we've got some work that you know has looked at what's happened since the election. Mm. So mm. the election happened, and what happened to the prices in Melbourne on the CoreLogic series? Mm. They went up yeah. by 0.1 percent. Mm. Now interest rates moved, didn't move. Interest rates moved again. Nothing happened. The responsible lending laws changed, and house prices have exploded in Melbourne and Sydney in the yeah. last three weeks. So you're actually pinpointing, because I know, you know, we've been saying, well, all of these things have lined up to create the perfect storm for, for a bit of reversal. So what you're saying is that you've actually done the research that, that pinpoints that it's, it's specifically at the APRA. I think that might have been a build-up of pressure. Right. And then the damn wall has fallen. Right, because, and that's been the catalyst. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, interest rates mean people are more likely to spend more money. Mm. You know, um, when we bought a couple of years ago, we thought interest rates were going to go up to 3 4 5%. Uh, well, the cash rate was going to go up and therefore interest rates would be back at, say, you know, 6% by now. Mm. Um, that clearly has not happened. Mm. Um, at the same time, so that obviously means that prices, uh, that's providing support for prices. The responsible lending laws, though, I think are a really interesting one because they mm. basically tighten the screws on people's ability to borrow and in a way that was pretty onerous. So you ask the average person, what do you spend each month? They have no idea. Yeah, no. true. So, so look, we're going through the whole like barefoot investor thing now, mm. trying to look at buying another house. Um, we did the numbers and I had no idea. Mm. But what I do know is how much money I have left over at the end of the month. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so with those responsible lending laws, particularly combined with the fact that we were using APRA, we're using a serviceability buffer of 7%. So, mm -hmm. you know, assessing people's ability to repay on the yep. basis of a 7% interest rate. Mm -hmm. Is it basically said you're being assessed and your ability to repay the loan uh, based on your current income less your expenses mm -hmm. at that level mm -hmm. when the whole point of interest rate changes 
is that you cut back your spending. Mm. So I think the law change there has actually been pretty good. Mm. Well, at least I think the logic of the of the of the judge, we, you know, I know he talked about Wagyu and Shiraz and cutting back spending. It was mm. very colourful. Mm. It's not the language I would have used, but mm. the logic's actually pretty sound. Mm. And I think that's the thing. Once you've taken everything else out, those other um, those other supports have sort of come in. Um, but if you like think that we're going to have this growing problem with affordability. Um, the last thing that you want to do is increase how much people can borrow mm. because the last thing, the first thing people are going to do is when they go and see a broker or they go to a bank, they ask how much can I borrow and they say a million dollars and they go out and spend a million dollars. And if that was 800000 they would have spent eight hundred. And so the, the worst thing we could do for the property market now is increase borrowing capacities. Mm. And, so the poly- and so what the whole purpose of ASIC's you know, battle, and they're appealing the, the the court case, is they're saying, look, we can't be just constantly increasing borrowing capacity because if the property market's basically priced on borrowing capacity, we're just going to keep increasing prices. And the best way to make it fairer is to force people to use actual living expenses because then borrowing capacities will reduce and you'll start lending money kind of more responsibly because unfortunately, you know, if a bank is goes through on customer declared living expenses and someone's spending a lot more money, they can borrow a lot more money and they can just kind of navigate their way through the system. So if you think about if you want to create more affordability, you've got to reduce borrowing capacities. I think it's a really tricky one because someone loses in that process. So I think prices have been falling, you know, that for some people has made housing more affordable. For other people, though, it's made it harder to get a loan. So I don't, and first-time buyers are the ones that are sort of often hit the most by that. It was only made harder for people to get a loan who... Um, were spending extravagantly or spending more than the hem if they weren't. So the people who was made hard to get a loan were people who were potentially needed to cut back their spending. Mm. And they were doing things like afterpay and gambling and, you know, and also things on their, their credit file. For the majority though, if they the bank still wanted to lend in that process. It's just people who were overspending weren't getting through the system. And I don't think that's, a bad thing if they can't get a loan. I think it's a good thing. Because <laughs> they, it's so it, it slowed down the property market mm. without doubt. It hit the market because it made people be more accountable. And so but if you still had if you still were spending reasonably, you could get a loan. And so it you know, I think, you know, moving that direction is actually a good thing because what it's saying is if if you are, you know, in control of your finances, we will go and put you in a lot of debt. But at the moment, no one cares about whether you're in control. They just care you've got a job. Well, the HEM measure, I think, is actually a pretty appropriate measure to use. So I think if you're saying to someone, as long as it's a HEM based on income. So there was a period where they were using the HEM that was basically the poverty line. And that's a bad thing to do because like I might be in a position where I can cut back my spending. But that is a situation where I might be hanging onto my fingernails to the loan, but I'm experiencing real harm from that. The situation I think you're going to worry about is the process where you're forcing people to actually verify expenses. I don't think that verifying expenses is actually the right way to do it. So I think something like the serviceability buffer where you say, okay, should it be, we've now cut rates. So that serviceability, one problem is that serviceability buffer is now two and a half percent above the prevailing interest rate. Mm. We're in a world where Phil Lowe doesn't want to cut rates because he's worried about house prices. Mm. You know, I'm sure you guys have seen the, mm. the comments he made at the Jackson Hole and the differences between what he said in the actual speech that was um, recorded versus what he said on the website. And there was a difference in sort No, of, can you point that out? I, I can't give you the exact quote, mm. unfortunately. Um, but uh, Jason Murphy at news.com has done a great job of sort of separating out. But basically the one on the website is pretty anodyne, like the risks of house prices. Mm. And then the one on the where he said in person, he's like really worried. 
Right. So you're in a world where if right. you're cutting you're cutting rates, you probably want to tighten those macroprudential rules. Mm. Yeah. But I think so. This is a subtlety. It's about how you do it. I don't mm. think the responsible lending laws were the way to do it. I think that's a particularly onerous and not very mm. accurate way of doing because people's expenses are not a good predictor of how much they can adjust their spending down in the future. Mm. Whereas, but if you are going to put someone in a lot of debt, shouldn't it be okay to force them to live the way that they should live? To actually make sure they can afford the loan. Oh, at the prevailing interest rate, sure. But yeah. you're, this was a combination that meant they had to do it based on the interest rate that's two and a half percent higher. But also mm. protect them if if rates rise. Well, no. I don't think anyone's expecting rates to rise anytime soon. Yeah. But you know what you're talking about here is these kind of measures. Macro pros are really hard ones. So I don't think anyone's done the good, really good study about what are the long term welfare impacts of of doing this because mm. you're obviously hurting some people and the people you end up hurting tend to be first home buyers. Well, okay, so the the latest figures are out that first home buyers are almost matching investor borrowing mm. for property for the first time probably ever. Really, I think mm. it's always a gap, right? So you know, I think and look, you know, I'm all for investing in property, but I'm also um, all for giving first home buyers an opportunity and having a more stable mm. property market. Mm. Certainly too much investment in property has, has not been a good thing. But a lot of that's to do with the investor lending restrictions. That exactly. So I think that's, that's a, a good different thing. kettle of fish. So yeah. I'm talking the, yeah. the responsible lending laws. Mm. I'm not sure they were a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Point. But the rest of it, mm. you know, I think we're pretty open to saying that that is. Although that's so easy too now. We're going to have a bit <laughs> of a short term sugar hit and it's already happened. You know, we've already gone. You know, borrowing capacities are already up dramatically than they were two or three months ago. Mm. And so what you're doing is you're going to get a lot, a lot of people are going to get through the system now, all the first-time buyers who want to buy, and they're going to come in and they're going to go, instead of spending 600 now I can get 750 They're going to go and bid at auction, and instead of buying that house at 600 they're going to be competing with someone else who's got 750 <laughs> and they're going to pay 650 Next couple of months, someone else is going to go in and they're going to pay 700 because they can borrow 750 So what we're going to do is we're going to reprice property based on higher borrowing capacity. Mm -hmm. Now, two, three years time, the young 28 year old now who hasn't got the savings to buy into the property market now has to go in and buy the property for 750. And it would have been able to buy it for 650 a couple of years ago. So the, it might help people who want to buy today, but in three years time, it's going to really affect them because they're going to have to buy property a lot more expensive because it's going to get factored into prices. And so I think you've got to be, we've got to be careful playing with borrowing capacity because the price of property is based on how much people have got mm. and how much people can borrow. And if you increase how much people can borrow, you're going to increase prices. And so I find it that it's not really going to help affordability. It's actually going to go the opposite. I just, you know, I think that's if we're trying to make help affordability, what we should be doing is limiting borrowing capacity. I think so. <laughs> I think we've, we've kind of gone down a, down a path that's kind of not the focus of a lot of Grattan's research on housing, mm. which is... Um, about sort of the efficacy of macroprudential rules. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm pretty conflicted as to also, honestly as to where I stand on some of this stuff because mm. there are these prevailing impacts, these mm. offsetting impacts. Yeah. In general, though, the idea that you can, you know, in the long run, you can't, I don't think you can use macro pru to make housing more affordable for everyone because mm. ultimately you are restricting lending to someone. So, you know, whoever that might be. Mm. You're ultimately, our research says in the long run, what you've got to do is deal with supply. That's the way in which you get housing to be more affordable over time. Um, and that's certainly, I suspect, you know, where we're going to need to go. Now, in the short term, interest rates have fallen. Mm. You know, we know that every, from Reserve Bank research, every 1% increase of cutting interest rates is about an 8% increase in property values. Yeah. Mm. But that is in exactly that. We're going to get the bigger in borrowing capacities, more mm. people coming in because of low rates, and then we're going to get prices to rise. And so, you know, what they potentially should have done, I believe, is APRA shouldn't have removed it to 5.5%. They should have kept it at 
five, <laughs> 7.25 because, and just cut rates because they would have got a, you know, and just made it more affordable for people if they actually get the mortgage, but don't let them borrow more money because the last thing you're going to do is just, it's just going to get factored into prices. But um, I mean, we can probably debate that one all day. In terms of the affordability um, policies you had around the election and negative gearing and things like that, I'd love to kind of unpack that a bit more because it was such a big issue. And, you know, I know that you guys were very passionate around it. I'd love to kind of understand. <laughs> we were equally passionate. <laughs> um, uh, around just how the, how, were you supporting Labor's policy 100% or did you think that the ideal or the idealism of restricting investors and financialization of property, but did you believe that, you know, you should just buy a new property, which was what Labor believed? What was a good idea? Uh, we we said in our research that the main thing you need to do is half the capital gains tax discount. Okay. That's the key piece of work. And that's actually the thing that will have much more impact on property markets and the budget in the long run. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because it, everyone called it the negative gearing tax policy. Mm. And it was like, even on, on their website, it was it was the negative gearing tax policy. It was like, uh, that's the sort of the Trojan horse really, isn't it? Because And in reality, to be quite frank, even though I'm benefiting, will benefit one day, from this very generous, you know, fifty percent tax concession on on uh, investment property, um, I can see a, a case that it should be halved or, or should be addressed, uh, reduced. And I also, can absolutely see that. And in terms of salience as well, so we we also suggest that you should you should roll back negative gearing, but it's the the less important part of the package. Mm. The salience, though, I think matters. So negative gearing, you see it every year on your tax return. Mm. This is what I got back as a result of putting in my rental losses and all the rest of it, the capital gains tax discount, you don't see that every year. You only mm. see that in yourself. at the end, even though that is the thing mm. in terms of what's the long-term budgetary impact that matters far more for the budget. Yeah. And I should be clear that our case or the, our argument for why negative gearing and CGT should change was actually not that much to do with the housing market. Mm. So I think a lot mm. of people said in 2016, Labor went to the election saying, let's do negative gearing. Uh, and CGT and house prices were rising and a lot of people said great you should do that because it's going to cut prices and that was an argument that kind of worked for them mm. at the election mm. uh, one problem with having a, an, a, a um, policy that you, you take to an election is if you lose you keep the policy and then the circumstances are vastly different by 2019 mm. Mm. our argument around negative gearing is that look in terms of tax policy the 25% capital gain well 50% capital gains tax discount mm -hmm. is too generous yeah. relative to what tax policy is supposed to be really, really achieving well it was it was said at a, in a, a different economic time wasn't it i mean we had different levels of in um, inflation and it was it was actually set to simplify things wasn't it because it was indexed yeah. before then and it was all very very complicated so you're but supposed to be taxing um, real gains yeah, right and yeah. so it was set too generous mm. relative to that and it is because on a top tax rate if you only get if you're only getting a 50% discount and you're paying 50% tax, the maximum tax you're probably going to pay is 25%, mm. which means that as an economy, you shift your does you shift your assets to asset, you know, growth assets rather than income assets, mm. because you know you're going to pay more tax that way. And secondly, capital gains tax, you only pay it when you sell. Yeah. So you, sell. you don't actually sell. Mm. So what you do is you avoid paying tax by pushing it to capital gains, growing assets, mm. and then never selling. And so that's why I think that's where the problem is, right? We we don't get any money on the income because it's negatively geared. Then we don't make much money on the capital gains because they never sell. And even if they do, we only get 25% of it. But there was very little debate about the CGT. The debate was all about negative gearing. And in fact, even a lot of your own, not maybe not penned by you, but certainly from the Grattan Institute, a lot of the articles were all about negative gearing. So why was that? Well, so our articles, I suppose, were more about negative gearing because that's what's in the public debate and that's what we're trying to defend right. sort of policy mm. position. Also, if you said capital gains tax discount, people would be like, what? What are you talking mm. about? So negative gearing was the policy that mattered 
a lot more. You know, I think it's a reform that's going to eventually come back. So, you know, if you're right and prices rise, partly mm. because of what policies that have changed mm. since the election, then I could see that easily coming back onto the into the public debate because mm. I think there'll be there's a lot of anxiety in Australia about prices rising again. There's a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of anxiety when prices started to fall quite quickly before yeah. the election, mm. Mm. Uh, before these various policies were unwound. Um, but the budget's going to be the thing that makes them have so a government of either side have to go there. So the long term challenge, I think we talked about before, is mm. we're going to have to spend a bit more. And at the moment, we're eroding the tax base. And so a lot of Grattan's work has said, yeah. well, look, you can cut some spending and we say ways you can do that, but you probably have to raise some revenue. And these are the least economically costly ways of doing that. Yeah, you need a good super point. tax break. And, and anxiety is going to kick off within <coughs> 12 to 18 months again because we are going to start seeing it again. We can already see it. You can already see it in, in Melbourne, in Sydney. The, ha- the things that suit families and young couples in Sydney and Melbourne are already the things that are rising and it's not the apartments. It's not the two bedrooms, the one bedrooms, the studios, um, the house and land packages right out in the suburbs. It's the things that are quite scarce and there's not many on the market and all families are gravitating towards them because they're low rates and they can borrow money. And you, they're gonna- you are a little bit skewed on that because that's sort of your demographic at the moment. But I can say in my area, definitely the first home buyer segments is very competitive. Yeah. Very competitive. Yeah. So, um, then, but, yeah. You know, if, so there's if, your one and two bedroom apartments. Well, no, I mean, first home buyers, I mean, generally, if they're going to have a family, they know that they're not going to... They're not worrying about that. They're not often, they're not thinking that far ahead. They just want to get on the property ladder and Mm. there's an opportunity. And so they see that as being an affordable entry point. But then they're not thinking about newer style apartments, are they? Hopefully not, but no, but they do. The building quality (laughs) issues. So then they want older apartments. That is changing a bit, yeah. So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. So let's get back to tax reform because the reality is that, that you know, a lot of people are commenting that, well, we need to do more than Band-Aids, you know, and no sort of government has the appetite that, say, Hawke and Keating did back in the 80s to do something really system- systemically changing. Um, so... First of all, other than the obvious, well, we want to—they want to win elections. Other than that, uh, the obvious reason is why that it's not tackled. You know, what are some of the things that you think really need to be dealt with? The tough things that our governments sort of, or politicians want to avoid, and why? Well, I think because they want to get elected. It's most things, right? So mm. most of, it's it's no surprise that a lot mm. of Grattan reports are we go and brief ministers and shadow ministers, and they're like. Great story. Yep, yep, yep. That's a big problem. That's a big problem. Ooh, <laughs> ooh, really? That's that's what we have to do? Oh, I don't know about that. Thanks for coming in. How annoying. Yeah. Well, it's just the reality of political life, you know. So that's part of, it's part of what we spend our time doing is mm. to try to change the public data, debate about reforms by right. focusing the public's attention on problems. So like things like bringing the home into the pension test? I think that's a great example. So- this is a problem that's really going to play out in the next couple of decades. So the, the, the backstory is uh, um, if you own a home, 
only in effect really the first $200,000 is included in the, in the pension assets test. The rest of it is excluded. So you could own a $250,000 home in Bendigo or a $2 million home in Turak and they'll both be counted the same in the assets test and mm-hmm. everything else equal, we get the same amount of pension. Now that didn't matter as much in a world when home ownership was at 80 plus percent amongst older Australians and when housing wasn't that valuable, but it matters a lot more now. And it matters for questions of fairness. Uh, so it matters that, you know, I might have my assets in housing. So I own a big house that's maybe worth a mil and I've got 200 grand outside in, in um, super and therefore I get quite a lot of pension. You might have not own a house and have, you know, less money overall, say $800,000 and you get no pension whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing people notice that now. The other reason it's going to matter is what we talked about before. Home ownership's falling a lot. And so you're going to get to the point where half of Australians in retirement don't own their own homes. And then that's going to look really unfair Mm. between those two systems. Mm. As an aside note, it's also a question, and we've historically assumed you don't draw down on your house in retirement. You pay off your house by the time you retire. It stays that way until you're either going to aged care or you pass away and it goes to your kids. Mm -hmm. In a world where housing is worth 10 times your income and you're spending 10 times your average, and you'd say you work for 40 years, you get 40 lots of your income. You spend 10 of it on housing, used to spend two, plus there's some mortgage interest. Mm -hmm. The fact that you then get to retire and then never draw on that asset ever again Mm -hmm. is not going to be possible. Mm. You've at some point, someone's going to have to deal with it because at Mm. the moment, what's happening is you're just giving an asset that's worth 10 times your annual income Mm. as inheritance to your kids. So an intergenerational Mm -hmm. income inequality or wealth inequality problem is going to become a within generation, like a classic inequality problem because- Yeah, because mum and dad who's got their big expensive houses paid off and- they use all their other assets. They re- they die and they've got a big house. It's all grown tax-free. Well, they don't even use their other assets. So there's that too. Yeah, okay. So then they pass they pass them on to the kids, which is all tax-free. So it takes us to an interesting point. If we are going to, you know, it's the research is all there that we are getting um, more inequality. Um, you know, the faster incomes are growing faster in the top segment of incomes rather than the, the bottom. Um, assets are growing faster with people who have got money than people who haven't got money. We are going to create this world where the top 20% have got more wealth every year. Do you think Australia should look at introducing an inheritance tax? I think it's something we're going to have to talk about. So the, the, the way that Grattan has attacked that issue is to say, well, for a start, we should sort of subsidising inheritances, which is what franking credits, super tax breaks and everything else is about. And they are things, you know, inheritance taxes are, are politically very unpopular. We had them in Australia until the 60s. Okay. Um, and then um, they, it was the states that ran them. And then Bjarke Peterson in Queensland got rid of theirs and slowly the other state, well, actually, I think quite quickly the other states got rid of them. Mm. Um, and so they used to raise quite a lot of money. Like we used to raise, I think, the equivalent of something like $10 billion in today's dollars out of those inheritance taxes. Mm-hmm. So big tax, back at the third or fourth biggest tax in Australia. Which sort of does force the selling of of assets back into the system really doesn't it because if you've got to pay tax then you've got to free up some cash somehow and um well you spend it or you give it away mm. well that's that's the way we got around it and, and yeah. people got around in the past now the issue that killed them in the past was family farms because mm. you'd have three or four kids and yeah. the farm is not just like an asset it's actually your it's business, business. Mm. and so what do you do every generation if you've got a 
so transfer that to your kids. Uh, yeah, exactly. Mm. And, and at a point, the, you sell a few paddocks and there's not much of a farm left. Mm. Mm. Um, there are questions around gifts and all the rest of it. So our approach, where basically where you, you give your money away before you retire and then you don't get touched. And mm-hmm. so some inheritance tax regimes do account for gifts mm-hmm. uh, that you give out before you, before you go. But no one raises an enormous amount of money from inheritance taxes. Around the world. No. So there tends to be ways that people do get around them. Mm. So designing them really well because we do have particularly the wealthy they can access pretty good advice and find their ways through the yeah, system well, that's exactly it isn't it even the u.s though oh uh, the u.s they use gifts so the u.s certainly doesn't raise i think the most inheritance taxes raised in some countries might be one a bit over one percent of gdp in places like right. finland u.s is less okay. i tell i tell you a, like an un, unintended consequence which may not bother most people but of the inheritance taxes a number of old houses that i've sort of been involved in either looking at to sell or buy my various de- couple of decades in real estate. And you'll see every now and then you come across some big old pile somewhere. That I saw one in Hunter Seal recently, one in Putney. I can think of a number of them where at some point be- before the inheritance tax was taken away, they've had to sell off a bit of the land to pay the tax. Mm. And depending on how smart or otherwise the beneficiaries were um the worst case was basically a waterfront home where they sold off a parcel at the waterfront they kept themselves at a little sliver of land that went down to the waterfront so they could still say it was a waterfront sliver wasn't wide enough to build anything or not even a boat shed so that was a bit dumb but they also didn't put a caveat on what could be built in front of them (laughs) so so they had this three-story monstrosity built i think in the 70s um which basically obliterated all their view. And, they did it the wrong way around. Oh, well, they couldn't move the house because the house no. was sort of oriented to the street. But so in Hunters Hill, for instance, you, you see quite a lot of these grand old homes. And, you know, I know there's not going to be a lot of sympathy mm. for the owners of these grand old homes, but it's sort of sad to see this, you know, carved up and really unsympathetic, you know, other dwellings plonked in really awkward spots. And mm. it, it's quite interesting how... That's been the impact of the inheritance tax in terms of some properties over the years. Well, taxes drive behaviour. So all yes. the all the terraces, exactly. right, were based on the fact that the, all the Victorian terraces were partly based on the fact that you your tax was about your road frontage. Ah, and so you'd right. build just a little one. So if you, I don't know. So the window tax, was it? Yeah, <laughs> Do you yeah. have a window tax in Australia? It was just oh, in the that's UK? a good question. Mm. Um, I'm not actually sure whether we did have one. Because you, you got taxed on your amount of windows. So if you had a terrace, there's not a lot of windows in a terrace. Yeah couple of windows at the front, couple at the back, that's it. So <laughs> if you've ever been to Vietnam, like you, that, the tax system mm. there works, it's about your street frontage. And so right. in right. the middle of rice paddies, you have these two-storey narrow, super narrow oh, houses. That's space why. In the so it's interesting you say this around home because I think it's another good tax that um, I believe the greatest tax write-off um, is the home ownership because, you know, if you buy a house, let's, and I like around numbers, but you buy a house for a million dollars, you live in it, and then you sell it one day for $2 million, and a lot of people have done that in Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. Um, they've made a million dollars, you know, give or take, um, tax-free. And, you know, if you earned a million dollars, you'd have to give 500 grand of that to the government or, you mm. you know, et cetera. That to me, I think, and you might not earn a million dollars over your whole lifetime, you know. So the biggest way to actually save on tax is actually home ownership. Do you think we need to look at that as in a country to potentially change that tax <laughs> um, and look at other ways of, you know, because it is the, the biggest tax write-off. Oh, it's it's the the preferential treatment or the the privileged position of own-occupied housing in Australia is the you're right. It's the biggest cost of revenue. Uh, it's a big impact on inequality, particularly as fewer people own their own homes. So look, we've looked at that before. So you could potentially raise quite a lot of money, but you've got the, this is the tricky part. 
it's not just, there's two parts to income from a house. It's the, the capital gains and what economists call the imputed rent. The fact that you, it's giving you a return because you'd have to pay rent. Right. Now, if you just taxed the capital gain, you'd probably face little calls to say, well, I should be able to offset, I should be able to deduct my interest payments against my income mm. tax bill. Mm-hmm. And if you just did those two things, you might not raise any, any money. Mm. You have to also then tax the imputed rent. Now, the fact that probably most of your listeners may not even know what I'm talking about, and then we're going to say to people, we're going to tax you mm. this thing that's worth 4% of your property value each year. Mm. It's complicated. It's complicated it? and <laughs> yes. it's hard to understand. Mm. And so if you think of franking I'm credits was hard. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I'm with you. Mm. I, I, I think that is where we, it, it would be great to go. It's just that's, that's the one we've sort of said there are the fights first. Right. Okay. Come back so to. Are you it's, saying it would be good to go there or are you just saying no, it's a I'm great just, opportunity? <laughs> I'm just talking tax policy and tax flaws. I mean, what about though if, you know, because this is what you basically do as a helping people, to, you know, the government to advise on tax policy and there are lots of loopholes within the mm. system that are marginalising people. And if you know what to do, yeah. you do structure your assets because what you said about tax, mm. um, tax policy drives behaviour. And if you... Yeah. Um, and so if you do want to encourage more behavior like home ownership, but you know, builders, people know that you can buy a house for a million, spend 300 on it and make 700 grand tax free if you sell it if, and you live in it. So if it's your home. However, if you start taxing the house, mm-hmm. if you tax the gain, um, I think it's going to make home ownership less attractive because you think about it, like uh, people do often trade up in their lives, right? And so you, you do buy a little house when you start with not everyone, but a lot of people buy a little house and then they might have it, three kids maybe, then they need to get a bigger house. Um, their ability to upgrade if they've got to pay tax on the gains is severely diminished. And that means you'll slow down house prices. That's exactly right. And you're and going to make so, it less attractive for people to actually buy. Then well, They may not be as excited about buying. People will still buy because they still want somewhere to live. They still want security. What you will stop though is people taking their gain, re-leverage, go back to the bank, and then they go and borrow another $2 million. And then they, so that's the problem with housing is people make profits and then they go to the bank and then they re-leverage it. Hmm. So they don't just stay in the house, pay off their debt. And so that's why you get prices rising because people are just constantly reinvesting their profit and not paying any tax. Do you think that's because they're paying stamp duty? Because that's a question I actually mm. have for you guys is do you see that people are still trading up? Because yes. stamp duty makes it very expensive. It does. And ba- it does. And in fact, it pretty much in sort of the area in which I buy my business, uh, where the 10K radius of the CBD of Sydney. So it's the most expensive area in, in Australia, basically. Um, you know, pretty much everybody accepts it's basically a quarter of a million dollar trans- transaction cost. You know, and that that's just in all the bits and pieces and stamp duty, the 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 selling fees, the buying fees, all of that stuff rolled in. They pretty much say, yeah, quarter of a million dollars. Okay, so therefore that's a hurdle you got to get over for starters. You know, so if you can't actually get access to a significant amount of money over that, then you're not going to get enough of an upgrade by doing going through the whole exercise to even bother. You know, so there's that hurdle, um, and that is something that does stop people, and that's that level. They do that. They'll only upgrade though if they know they're going to get a better asset and they're going to make that two hundred and fifty grand back in gains. Oh, I honestly think for owner occupiers don't often think exactly like that. An investor might, but an owner occupier is often thinking, "Oh, that's a cost." It's they're not even thinking. I actually exhort my clients to think like investors when they're buying their home because often they're not thinking like investors. Mm. They're just thinking, "I want to have this environment to live mm. in for my family or whatever." They're, that's what they're thinking. 
um, you know, I want more space. I want this. I want better schools. I want whatever whatever the drivers are that, that's encouraging them to want to upgrade. They're not really thinking of it that as an investment. Uh, not many of them. Um, but there are other areas where people do buy for the long term. They buy and they sit. They buy and maybe spend their money um, renovating, for instance, and they're buying to sit there for 20, 30 years. Well, because the, the average owner-occupier is going up. Um, is in their house for at least 20 years. Yeah. Mm. So so these areas that we're talking about, the churn is unusual mm. in terms of the broader sense. Yeah, and then I guess that average um, bears that out. So so for uh, just a reflection on sort of my, the, my cohort. So, you know, I'm in my mid-30s. Um, a lot of my cohort are trying to buy houses. Some, you know, have really high income, some don't. Mm. The ones that, what's interesting, the ones that don't, they tend to, that idea that's always been told to me is like you trade up. When you're talking about trading up in sort of like anywhere near the centre of Melbourne, so if you buy, say, a two-bedroom apartment, it costs mm. you, or maybe you buy a townhouse, it costs you, say, 800 grand or something, and then mm. you want to trade up to a house that's worth a bit more, mm. the stamp duty does become very high. And I think yeah. people just don't do that as much because those costs are so Agreed. large. Mm. And I, I, w- I would have posit that a lot of the inner city renovation market would disappear if mm. stamp duty um, was reformed or changed to land tax. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is people go, well, I've got to, got to spend X thousand dollars on stamp duty. I can just do a renovation and stay here for a while. I agree. Mm. The, the, anecdotally, I can I can concur that a lot of people have that dis, that conversation, and that's their decision. In fact, I just had a meeting with a client last week about that. There were their options. You know, you're going to lose a quarter of a million dollars in the transaction, and you're going to move out of the area in which you really really like and, you, mm. and you're familiar with. You know, I will consider the option of what can you do with your home now, this home first. It's going to be a lot less painful. So I guess the way to ref- if we're looking at you know, creating a fairer system, um, you know, a way to do that is to start taxing the land that people hold because <laughs> they will make uh, They will have I'm, to. I'm laughing not because I agree, but because of the, the sage nodding and the smile on Brendan's face. Just the warm glow that came over yeah. you when oh, you raised that. Yes. I hate land tax here. Because go. land tax is the way that, you know, if you, for example, have got a $4 million house, you paid your stamp duty 20 years ago, if you want someone to trade that access, to create stock, to et cetera, you make it expensive then to hold that land. And so instead of having a system where you have one-off tax with stamp duty, do you think we should consider taxing land rather than stamp duty? Absolutely. So stamp duty, I think, is a, quite an unfair tax because it tends to hit people that are younger and that people that move a lot to take new opportunities in their life rather than those that buy a house in an in a, in a established suburb, wherever it might be. Um, and stay there for 30 years. Mm. And um, so why should those two households be treated differently? Because one's had more get up and go to move and find things mm-hmm. and sort of chase down opportunities, which is what you want to have happen in a, you know, an open, productive economy. So, mm. you know, if I if I got a job in Sydney and was going to move to Sydney, then you want to have a, make, make it so I could do that. And mm. then if I go to Brisbane or if I'm in Melbourne and I need to come and, come and move in the southeast, then I need to be able to do... You want to encourage that because otherwise... Yeah, less mobility, people move less often, the mm. economy is so less dynamic. What would land tax look like for you? Because I hate the way it currently is set up. Um, yeah, I absolutely hate it. But what, you know, because it, a broad based land tax would be completely different to what's currently existing, I'm presuming. Or do you have similar, do you think it should stay along the same, no, line, I same think, lines? No, I think so. Council rates is a broad based land tax. Mm. So council yeah. rates applies to unoccupied housing, True. it applies to investment property, mm. it applies to commercial. That, it applies to agricultural land, it applies to farms, mm. although there are sometimes carve-outs for that. Um, that is the right tax base. So the answer is not to take the existing land tax system that only applies to 
investors and leverage that up. That's not going to work. One, because to raise the money you'd need to fund the abolition of stamp duty, the tax rates would be enormously high Mm. uh, and that's not going to happen. So a broad-based land tax, we we think a number of... um, about half percent of the un- of the unimproved value, uh, right. about half percent. So basically, what is that? Six hundred, five, six hundred dollars for every, or fifty or sixty bucks for every thousand dollars of land value, mm-hmm. right? Or if you do it on the capital improved value, so the total value including the buildings, maybe half that, because land mm-hmm. is only half the value of the mm-hmm. dwelling on average mm-hmm. across the across mm-hmm. Australia. Mm-hmm. It's different, obviously, in apartments versus houses. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be enough to fund the abolition of stamp duty which is what the ACT has done. So the ACT government actually has Australia's best state tax system. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are about a third, close to a half of the way through a transition away from stamp duty towards land tax. Mm-hmm. They were gradually ratcheting down stamp duty each year, although they haven't ratcheted it down as much as they've increased land taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so total revenues have gone up, mm-hmm. um, which is often, I think, when people say um, uh, sort of a sceptical of land taxes, they're worried about higher tax take in mm-hmm. total. And yeah. that's certainly something that can happen. But stamp duties are popular. They're not, no tax is really popular, but stamp duties are more popular than land tax. Yeah. Stamp duty is really, it's only once, it's built into the property price. Mm-hmm. So you're already borrowing a million dollars, for example, or 500,000. Yeah. And what's what's a bit more? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a barrier um, to entry. It is certainly a barrier yeah. to entry. Yeah. And so you feel it as a first home buyer, but it's yeah. not the same. You're only a first home buyer once, yeah. or, and then you forget. Oh, no, I don't think you do forget. I, I think it's what's painful, maybe, but mm. you don't. You definitely don't forget. Okay, so it's yeah. less painful than getting it's a land more tax. It's achievable. A land tax bill you get it every year, oh, and it's a big I can't fat tell wad you how of cash. Revolting that. Well, it's tax deductible. Yeah, great. I go. I pay the state government, and then I get to claim forty-seven percent of that. But well, no, it, actually, I don't think because land tax in the current way that it's it's um, applied. It's there's no productivity around that. It's just basically, I'm, it's not even based on what I earn from that land. It's actually just bang. And you know, while the prices were rising, I have to say every year I was, and I'd look at it and I'd, and I'd re, revalue my my properties and I'd be like, yeah, okay, so how much it cost? But but it is, you know, it, it is unfair because it, it's an inequitable inequitable in the way that it can be applied, right? So if you choose to buy houses, for instance. Um, and yet you could also spend the same amount of money buying apartments in the same areas. And you say you buy those three-bedroom apartments that are really in demand and, and really good assets. That whole idea of the land value, I mean, I can go on about this for hours, but basically you could have the same property, same size property portfolio constructed differently. I could have a, something in Melbourne. I could have much. something in a really good apartment would and, and, and well-located absolutely will. I, I can show evidence that, that some of them do. So if you were, or I had one in Brisbane and I had one in Melbourne and I had one in Sydney, I'm paying less land tax. You know what I mean? So it's not, it is actually not fairly applied and it is another tax that other investment classes don't have. You know, so so wow. I, the way it currently is, I really, really, really discomfort, um, massive discomfort with that. But So the just on the economic case, the, the case is very simple. It's you want to tax things that don't move. Mm. Land can't move. You want to tax things that aren't going to change people's behaviour. Now, you've given some examples where land tax is imperfect, so it does change people's mm, behaviour. Yeah. But on the whole, it's you're less likely... If the tax applies for the highest and best use, which is kind of how the land's supposed to be valued, 
if that's imperfect, but it's pretty close, mm-hmm. then, you know, there's no, it doesn't matter. The land value, the tax is the same regardless of whether if it's an empty plot mm-hmm. of land or whether it's got a six-story apartment building mm-hmm. on it. The tax is the same. What about use? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's that's good tax design because you want to not change people's behaviour. The example you're giving me about, land, about the townhouses, well, the reason the townhouses, even if it's the same property value, mm-hmm. Uh, has less land tax is because the land components are less a smaller share of property. Get, I get yeah. that, but I, and I know it's meant to sort of tax the rich and all that sort of stuff. Well, we don't think of it in terms of taxing <laughs> the rich; it's taxing well, the people that own land right, and the yeah. main people but, but, who go. <laughs> well, actually, it's really interesting. So mm. that you know, if you think about taxing land, tax about le- mo- wealthy people hold less of their total assets in land as a percentage. As a percentage. What, where's that data more. from? That's, uh, that's from the Survey of Income and Housing. Right, you know, right. we've published it before in Grattan Reports and so property taxes because they they they've mm. got their they've got stocks, they've got super, they've got everything. Yeah, yeah. It's the middle that you actually mm. tax mm. a bit more. Interesting. And I mean, land tax. It's it's a tax you might be paying because you own land. Um, end of the day, it's you're still a landowner and you've still got a portfolio and you've still got things growing for you. And you, if you didn't own any investments, you wouldn't pay any land tax. So. You, you, you're paying a tax because you've got the ability to own and that's stopping other people owning that land. And there's got to be some type of ability of making, you know, limiting how much people land have got because or makes, making it harder because, you know, we do want to rather have, rather than more and more investors, we do want to have people getting into homes. I guess the biggest problem with taxes, people say, oh, don't tax us more, don't tax us more, but we need to tax to a certain level. But what on the other side of the equation, what can the government do on the spending side where we're potentially being a bit too frivolous or we're wasting money in certain areas. Like- and we're not spending enough in areas, maybe. Yeah. Well, so, you know, Grattan is like any, any, any think tank will have examples of things where we probably should spend some more money. Mm. Um, so we've talked about, you know, the problem of low-income earners struggling to pay for housing and the fact that more won't own in future, particularly as retirees. You mm. probably need to boost rent assistance, which is a payment that's attached to income support payments. So if you get the pension and your rent, you get some rent assistance. So we're saying that should go up. Oh, and look, I did read your article about NRAS and I just thought that was really interesting. Just put one of the points, there's a lot of interesting points in the article. We'll put the, the link in the show notes, by the way, but interesting note um, about um, the fact that the, what is the developer's uh, rebate or... You get about $11,000 $11, a year. Regardless whether it's a one better or a three better. I mean, I just like... Really? What sort of naive, commercially naive, um, you know, public servant put that together? Look, I was in Treasury at the time. <laughs> you? Uh, no, it wasn't me. No, it wasn't me. I incidentally, I worked on the stimulus. Mm. So I helped design mm. the stimulus payments but um, and did pension, parts of pension reform. But it's, it's Economics 101. So we looked at that after Labor announced their new policy and mm. we thought, okay, well, we better have a look at this and just so hang on. That's you, you, it's the same. Mm. Yeah, it's just and, like, and you know, it is. You know, it's the, the subsidy was way too high, and then mm. it was, it was the same for everyone. It's, it's, it's economics one hundred and one policy failure mm. that you yeah. would not want to see replicated in Australia again. And so I mean, to I mean, Enrise is you know about finding affordable housing to key workers, and you know you would encourage investors to buy that housing to. Um, you know, because they would get a subsidy so they could provide more rental. Or to build that housing and then yeah. investors mm. buy it. And yeah. so, you know, you create more stock on the market and we'll give a subsidy and then we'll create, you know, more rental, cheaper, affordable rent. What is your thoughts on, you know, Scott Morrison's kind of 5% deposit? Um, let's get everyone into the housing market. We'll back you. Well, it's only, isn't deposit. it 10,000 people or something? It's not everyone. 
Well, <laughs> it is capped, isn't it? I haven't looked at it for a little while, but basically um, it's the perfect epitome of a policy that sounds good that's not going to do a lot. Now, it's probably not going to do a lot because not many people are going to take it up. Mm. But even if they did take it up, it goes from being um, ineffective to counterproductive. Because if lots of people take it up, then to your arguments before about that'll just turbocharge more borrowing yep. and add to demand, then that'll push up prices. Yeah. Exactly. And why do you think people won't take it up? Um, I think these kind of schemes, we've had a few of them in the past, like mm. the super saver scheme, um, you know, where you can um, contribute money to your super and then get it out the other end. Not many people have taken that up in the mm. past. Most people tend to want to have more than a 5% right. deposit themselves. Mm-hmm. It's part of feeling secure. So mm. the average amount of, the average leverage ratio for first home buyers has not changed in 15 years. Well, what is that? 83%. Wow, interesting. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Brendan, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Uh, Look, I did, but I think the best example I've heard of was actually not something that property someone in um, a buyer did wrong, but uh, something to be wary of from a mate of mine who works um, doing uh, in development. Not his development. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, if you get off the plan development and um, you look at your house and you know, the plans and if it's, mate, be careful if it's got furniture drawn on in the plans because there was this beautiful big round coffee table in the middle of the living room. Oh, no. Oh, it was a structural pillar. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's a, such a good Dumbo. Oh, my God. Now, they ended up hocking off the, so the department. The developer ended up clearly offering it for them for less, but they basically squeezed one more in. And just they needed that extra Didn't bit of structural support. support. Oh. So it's like a uh, a pole in the middle of the in the lounge room. It's That's a feature. A, it's a yeah. feature wall. Yeah, it's, um, something to dance around, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a goal. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is. We talked quite a lot with Brendan around housing affordability. And one of the things that I just want to talk about in this boot camp is for first home buyers to be very careful about really trying to get government grants. Now, a government grant for a first home buyer is icing on the cake as far as I'm concerned, but it should definitely not be a, a, a complete controlling factor. Now, let me give you an example. Quite often, these government grants are really encouraging you to buy a brand new property. Now, we've talked on and on and on about why that might not be a great idea, And so that in itself is a reason to avoid the grant if it is only paid on brand new because fundamentally brand new property loses value very, very often straight away. So you might get a few thousand dollars from the government, but you're potentially losing hundreds of thousands of dollars or at least tens of thousands of dollars very, very quickly. So it's an absolute false economy. Another area in which relying on government grants is a problem is that it might limit your budget where you actually could afford more. Now, let me give you two examples of where that might be a problem. One is where you're, you're competing with every other first-time buyer also trying to keep under the threshold, and so therefore you're effectively paying a bit more than a property might be worth um, at that point, right? And that whereas if you added, say, 50 grand to your budget, it takes you into a different price bracket, which is not as competitive with first-time buyers, and you might find that proportionately you get a lot more value So that is one example. The other flip side is that it might limit what you buy. 
And when I say by that is that say you buy a one-bedroom apartment because it keeps you under the threshold, whereas you could actually afford a two-bedroom. Now, in that one-bedroom, you might be a couple and decide to have a child or you might be single and you find a partner. All of a sudden, that property that you bought, you very, very quickly outgrow it. Now, the transaction cost of selling that and upgrading to a larger apartment well, you can lose any savings that you made in terms of you know, not having to pay stamp duty, for instance, or, or getting a few thousand dollars from the government. You can easily lose those, those savings in the transaction cost, the cost of selling and then buying again, and then ultimately having to pay stamp duty all over again. So that's our bootcamp for today is really just to caution yourself around using or limiting yourself around government grants if you are a first home buyer. Please join us for our next episode when we find out about what's happening in the Melbourne property market. Now, you know that Chris and I are both Sydney-based and so we can be forgiven, I guess, for talking more about Sydney than other places in the country. But we've planned a trip to Melbourne and we're going to be interviewing a number of people. So we'll be meeting with buyer's agent David Easterbrook and finding out about how the recovery in the Melbourne property market is playing out and whether there's still an apartment oversupply problem in the city. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.